0: Hi there, thanks for joining us on another edition of Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and today on the program we are going to be talking about the big news of the week, probably the big news of the year, and that is the first image, official image, from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's only been announced in the last hour or two since we started recording, so uh, it's fresh off the press or off the president's desk, whichever way you want to look yes. at it. We'll also be talking quantum communications so we can talk to aliens. Apparently, there's a new theory that this could work. And also, new telescopes being built at Siding Spring Observatory, just up the road from where I am and where Fred used to work. And it will be, or they will be detecting gravitational waves. We'll also be hearing from Ben in Dover who has a question about gravitational waves and Alex from New South Wales is apparently going to ask a question about the size of galaxies it's boring (laughs) that is that's all to come on this edition of Space Nuts 15 seconds guidance is internal 10 9
1: Ignition
0: sequence start. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three two, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts
1: report it feels
0: good. And joining us, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thanks. Very excited with all that's going on. Oh. Man, it's <laughs> just crazy town at the moment. Mm-hmm. It is. The astronomy world is agog. Agog, that's right. Gog. That's it's a- not a word I get to use very often. <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> yeah, I, go- I like go- agog. I think it's yes. got a ring to it.
0: Mm. Yeah, that uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Of course, we've got plenty to talk about and uh, some audience questions, as I as I mentioned. Uh, and and you've got a studio guest, Fred. Are you able to <laughs> share this with our viewing audience? If you're Maybe. if you're watching this on YouTube, you're Get ready for a surprise! <laughs>
1: Just to let everybody know that he still exists. There's Muscat, Muscat, our family cat, who normally doesn't come into the study here because he leaves copious quantities of hair wherever he goes. But he's been asleep there in the chair all morning and all after most of the afternoon, so he's Dear still me. here. He's he doing, doesn't say much these days. He's doing he's... cats proud because that's what cats yes. do best. <laughs> yep,
0: yeah. Uh, it's yes, good yes. to have Muscat in the studio. Right. Let us get down to business. And first on the agenda is this amazing image that has been delivered by the James Webb Space Telescope. It's been a lot of anticipation about what the first image would be, a lot of anticipation about how far reaching the James Webb Space Telescope will be in its capacity to provide deep field imagery from far, far back in the uh, universe,
1: and it has not disappointed, Fred. Not at all. That's right. So what we're seeing, and, and I would guess most of our listeners will have seen this because I think it's going to be the cover picture on the on the podcast for today. You see, uh, yes it's it is. really is a beautiful image of a cluster of galaxies which as always has a gobbledygook name. It is SMACS0723. Um, uh, SMAC stands for streaming motions in Abel Clusters. Okay. Uh, and Abel clusters are clusters that were catalogued by George Abel, who I knew when he worked in Edinburgh for a while. So cluster is a cluster of galaxies. But, of course, like so many of these giant clusters, its mass acts as a gravitational lens, magnifying and distorting the images of galaxies in the far distance behind it. And so this particular cluster um shows up beautifully in, you know, the kind of colors that you would expect. So, as you know, the James Webb telescope is an infrared telescope. Excuse me. So it can look at the image in various infrared wave bands. And what you can do is sort of equate those to visible light wave bands so that things that are in the far infrared show up as red in the visible. Things that are, you know, in the mid infrared show up as, as white. Things that are in the Near infrared, in other words, not much redder than red, they'll show up probably as blue. I'm not quite sure how they did the colour balancing in this image, but they've got it absolutely right because the nearby stars are blue. The relatively nearby cluster of galaxies is white. And the distant ones, as you might expect it, because they're highly redshifted, they look orange in colour, again, distorted. So we're looking back here, you know, will be, well, the nearby cluster is 4.6 billion light years away. The one beyond it could be double that. I haven't seen the results of that, but it's a long way off. And what I think is most telling about this image, so this is being called Webb's first deep field image. Mm. Um, And you probably remember because we've talked about it before the hubble telescope produced a number of deep field images deep being how how far into the universe you're looking how far into the past you're looking and there was the the deep field the hubble i can't remember what the ultra deep field i think was the last one there were a number in between as well but they took weeks of time on the hubble space telescope to build up the imagery. I remember the first one. They, they chose the part of sky because there was nothing visible in it, and so that's then right. they observed it for for several nights or several days, because it doesn't matter in a space telescope. Um, and finally got these deep fields. So, but it took up to weeks to get them. Mm. The James Webb first deep field was obtained in twelve hours. So that's telling you. That you know, we we now have a tool that can beat the pants off the Hubble Space Telescope, and that is no small achievement. And of course, that comes about because it's a much bigger telescope. The Hubble is two point three meter telescope. This is a six point five meter telescope.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and 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 that's really part of the reason why people have become so excited in anticipation of what it is capable of and it's it's already showing its true colors, boom boom. You, you know the part that really blew my mind when I looked at the image and read the description from NASA? I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about here. NASA says this image covers a patch of sky approximately <laughs> the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length by someone on the ground That's right. and reveals thousands of galaxies in a tiny sliver of vast space. I know we always talk about the vastness of the universe, but here we are looking at a distance of maybe four to eight billion light years, and we're looking at something that uh, only takes up space the size yes. of a grain of sand held at arm's length. Absolutely, I yeah. mean, my word, it
1: just—it is awe-inspiring. It really is. Yeah, it blew the president away as well. I don't know whether you saw the, uh, the NASA broadcast when this was released, but President Biden. You could tell he was absolutely captivated by all this. Mm. It's fantastic to see such enthusiasm. And, of course, Andrew, this is only the first of many. By the time our listeners are watching and listening to this, if they watch on YouTube, we expect another tranche of images to have been released. The kinds of things that we're expecting to see, in fact, I think we've got a fairly A fairly good list here. We'll see WASP-96b. Now, that is a planet. That's an extrasolar planet, WASP-96b. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that shows up. We're going to see the Southern Ring Nebula. That's a planetary nebula. We'll see, no doubt, a lot of detail in that. We're going to see a cluster of galaxies, a very compact cluster of galaxies called Stefan's Quintet. Very well-known, very beloved of galactic astronomers or extragalactic astronomers people who study the the wider universe these galaxies are physically close together and all interacting with one another and of course an object in our deep southern sky the carina nebula the eta carina nebula one of the most active regions of space in our local neighbourhood, so it would be really interesting to see what's going on in that too. Yes, yes. And who knows? We we might actually uh, be
0: focusing our cameras on alien civilizations out there somewhere, and we don't even know it. We don't. But that dovetails <laughs> beautifully into our next story. Yes. So all I'll say, just to finish up with the James Webb Space Telescope, is watch this space, as we as we've said because there's some exciting things to come. It's really – I think it's fantastic that they've done so well, that it got in place. Yes, it's had a couple of problems that they've managed to overcome without any adverse effect, and now it's ready to do its job. And, yeah, who knows what we're going to learn, Fred? Who
1: knows? Absolutely. That's fabulous stuff.
0: But, uh, yes, I mean, maybe we will be focused on alien civilizations and maybe they'll be able to talk to us using quantum communications. Now, this is, <laughs> this is a, a theory that's been put together by some scientists
1: who believe this might be mathematically possible at least. <laughs> so this, Andrew, is a really very intriguing story, I think, that mathematical calculations show that quantum communication would be possible across interstellar space. And I mean, I know you and I have talked about quantum communications before because over the years there's been successive records broken for how far you can send quantum encrypted signals. So what do I mean by quantum well, I was about encrypted to ask. Signals? I mean, what, what does this actually mean? I, I don't... What does it mean? Yeah. And it's about entanglement and So this idea that, you know, if you've got a quantum particle in some state, for example, the spin of an electron, it can be entangled with a spinning electron. It can be entangled with another one so that they come together in a kind of unified sense and just look like a single quantum object. And then if you separate them physically, you can can infer by by knowing something about one of them, you can infer something about the other. Like if one's spinning one way, then the other's got to be spinning the other way. But you don't find that out until you actually look at one of them and that breaks the quantum entanglement. And the way this has been used in, in real life, if I can put it that way, is in encrypted communications. And I think the first, the, certainly the first really good experiments in this were done at the University of Vienna and you know they were talking about first of all a few meters, and then a, a kilometer or so, and then I think it extended to maybe a hundred kilometers. And then Chinese scientists got involved with this, and started doing quantum com- communications from space. So I think the record at the moment stands at about twelve hundred kilometers, and it's a an encrypted communication from a spacecraft down to the ground, which has maintained its quantum. Uh, it's quantum super super excuse me superposition to give it the technical term i'm swallowing these words in other words that allows this you know this encryption to take place and to be revealed by what's called the quantum key which is the the entangled particle or photon or whatever it is. So that's the basis of quantum communication not very well explained, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, the problem is... I'm still a bit confused, but... Um... <laughs> well, if you're confused, just think I... about what everybody else is confused. This this cat here is absolutely out of his mind with confusion. I can as you see can that, see. Yes. He's so stressed Rendered out. unconscious. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um, it said it's fundamentally about about using quantum encryption to provide a key to decode a signal that you've you've received and that's perhaps the you know it glosses over some of the the, the tricks there um, so the problem is and the reason why there's been this this there's been this succession or successively increased distances over which quantum communication has succeeded is that as soon as you put a photon for example into space it interacts with the its environment and that tends to degrade the quantum encryption and so the that's why people have improved the technology and successively managed to push quantum encrypted signals further and further. And as I said, it's now over a thousand kilometers. It might even be be more than that because this is a field that has moved very quickly. Because of course it has practical applications for things like banking. Oh. Um, you know, you're encrypting communications in a way that is it's mathematically. Unbreakable, that's the bottom line. Unlike most encryptions, which aren't, quantum encryption may still not be, but it's as near as you're going to get to being mathematical unbreakable. So what's happened now is that actually they are scientists at the University of Edinburgh School of Physics and Astronomy, which is where I was educated, there in Scotland. I can hear that. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> It rubbed off a bit. They've used... Um, they've basically use mathematics to show that you could use these quantum communications across interstellar space, never mind, you know, a few metres in the lab or a few kilometres in Vienna or a few, you know, a few hundred kilometres up and down to a spacecraft. They say it suggests that you could push them to interstellar space. And that's a really interesting thought because it's such a secure form of met- message transmission that is really the remarkable aspect of this and what they suggest is that uh, you could you could actually you could keep these um, quantum uh, it's called coherence quantum coherence when when you've got your two particles which are still entangled the quantum the coherence could be maintained for many thousands or hundreds of thousands of light years including the you know the, the gravitational pull of objects on the way if I can put it that way oh, great. if you've got gravitational interference that doesn't actually spoil the the coherence. Um, and so what bottom line from this paper is that, if there are other intelligent beings anywhere in the Milky Way, they might be trying to communicate with us using quantum encryption, and so and maybe I, can, I that can hear them now, Fred. They're saying, "Geez, these dumb schmucks haven't figured it yeah. out yet." Yeah, We've we been sent been them the quantum them, key.
0: Yeah, sent them <laughs> their our supermarket list, and they're just ago. ignoring
1: us. Ignoring us. So. So, yeah, so, you know, that might change the way that we do SETI, for example, if we're looking for signals that might bear some kind of hallmark of being quantum encrypted. I'm not sure what that would be, but I'm sure there is one. But there's a lovely throwaway last line. You know, we're fans of the fizz.org website, and their report on this ends with the sentence, they, and by they they mean these researchers in the University of Edinburgh, they also suggest that quantum teleportation across interstellar space should be possible. Oh, boy. Put that one in your pipe and smoke yes. it. That's, a, so, so, that's such a neat idea. So just to
0: drag it back to my pea-sized brain trying to get... My head around this: Are they talking about the potential for instantaneous communication over vast distances using quantum entanglement via this mathematical method, which appears to use X rays? I think. Yeah, it's
1: yes. I think it's does use X rays. The, the work that's been done so far. Look, that is the that's the, th- the, the thirty six million dollar question. Yeah. I don't even know that it's the theory because I think the signals still have to travel at the speed of light but it's the encryption bit that's the instantaneous bit because okay. that's where the the you know the idea of entangled particles comes in Now this is territory that is full of pitfalls and the you know the the perhaps naive way of looking at it which I, I confess I do is that if you if you you know if you look at the spin of an electron, in one place and its entangled companion is 50 light years away, then you immediately know what's happening to the uh, the entangled companion. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a signal that's breaking the speed of light, because the information is rather special. And I, I know a lot of physicists caution against this naive view that Einstein's speed limit of the speed of light is being broken if, you're, if you've got entanglement. So we should... Tread rather carefully there, and I suspect we're not going to be either sending signals faster than the speed of light or indeed being teleported at faster than the speed of light, but it is a paper that's worth looking at. I confess I haven't looked at the original paper yet, but I should do. Imagine if they crack it, though.
0: Imagine if that they're right be- on the money with this yeah. and we've found a new way to deliver messages into interstellar
1: space or receive them. That That's pretty exciting. Uh, well, it is, absolutely. Anything along these lines is. And, you know, you could, yeah, you never know. There might be a Nobel Prize at the end of this, just like could there is at be. the end of the James Webb Space Telescope. Could <laughs> well be,
0: yes. But uh, as Fred said, uh, if you want to read up on this this discovery, will we call a discovery or this theory. Yes, I think it is. Yeah. I think it's a discovery. Um, yes. The phys.org website. It's just an excellent resource, that website.
1: Really mm-hmm. love it. And it will send you to a physics review letters article which is where the its physical review d is the um, is the source of the of the paper
0: yeah if you just do a search for quantum communications you'll probably find it rather easily yes. all right hopefully there's more to tell then yep in the near future all right we're going to take a little bit of a break and a breather although we've already done that at length today (gasps) due to our communications problems. That's because we didn't take a quantum leap to solve it. But uh, anyway, we will carry on. You're listening to and in some places watching Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, uh, back to your old stomping ground now up around Siding Spring Observatory at Coonabarabin, which is only around about two hours' drive from where I am. Well, two hours the way I drive, an hour and a quarter for everyone else. But uh, <laughs> new telescopes are being developed that will be focusing on the detection of gravitational waves. Tell us all about
1: it. Yeah, so it's not it's not a, a LIGO or anything like that, you know, a, an interface an interferometer that detects the actual physical shaking of space-time as a gravitational wave passes. What this is about, Andrew, is telescopes that can actually look for the visible light counterpart of some of the events that create gravitational waves. And that's important because even though we now have the two LIGO detectors, we've got the, the Virgo detector in Italy have joined them, the LIGO detectors of course being in the USA and the KAGRA detector in in Japan I think is also online so even though you've got these widely separated detectors to pick up gravitational waves in different parts of the Earth. And that lets you do a bit of triangulation to work out what direction the gravitational waves are coming from. It's still not very precise. And if you want to follow up on the details of the aftermath of an event like a neutron star pair colliding or something of that sort, uh, then you need to see the visible counterpart, the visible flash. And so that's what basically driven this development of Well, actually, the the telescopes, and there are more than one of them, are called GOTO, G-O-T-O, which is an acronym for Gravitational Wave Optical Transient Observer. And one of those is coming to Australia. It's actually, it's a great acronym, I have to say, I like it very much. So the University of Warwick in the United Kingdom is the one of the um, prime movers in this, but there are many collaborators, including Australian universities, particularly Monash University down in Melbourne, to have widely spaced uh, telescopes that can look in both the northern and southern hemispheres, that are all ready to go, and and immediately scan the sky, the part of the sky gravitational wave appears to come from. Even though you don't know it very precisely, you've got a rough idea where it is. So if you've got a group of telescopes that can scan that, can immediately home in on that bit of the sky once an alert has been received, and then start taking images, then what you might find is the aftermath, the flash of one of these events. You know, black hole gobbling up a neutron star or whatever it is that's sending ripples through space-time the speed of light. So mm. the, the story here is that the Northern Hemisphere part of Gotu has been in operation for some time, I think. And it's located in another place that I've worked at, actually, quite a lot in my history. This is the uh, the IAC, which is the Canary Islands Institute of Astrophysics. They are based in the Canary Islands, as you might as you might know, they have telescopes both in Tenerife and on the island of La Palma, which is where I used to work in the Canary Islands. There's a a big uh, suite of telescopes there that were originally developed by the British in in collaboration with the Dutch and i did a lot of work there in my time so one of the one of the uh, go to facilities is there it's the northern hemisphere one but here in the south we are getting the southern hemisphere version and in fact i know that groundbreaking has taken place i think this week been parts of go to stashed away in the UK Schmidt Telescope's ground floor for quite some time, but I think the work on installing this telescope and it's actually several telescopes, the work is going ahead already. So, this is great news, it's really good that we are playing a part. One of the things that I think is worth stressing is that it is a fantastic testament to the staff and support. And the management of Siding Spring Observatory, now managed as it always has been. In fact, the observatory has always been managed by the Australian National University through both their facilities and services division and the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. It says it speaks volumes for all the work that's been done there and the quality of the site itself that they are still attracting new facilities to be built on that mountaintop, very far away from you, Andrew, as you said.
0: Yeah can't see it from where I am, but uh you don't have to drive very far before you start seeing those beautiful mountains yes, in the Warren Bungle right. ranges <laughs> and anybody who's never been out west who um you're missing something spectacular it's just when you when you're driving out of the town of Gilgandra and you're you're heading north towards Turwena and you're just going through that area you just see these these amazing mountaintops in the distance and they blow your mind the first time you see them you just go what on earth is that it's just a beautiful beautiful place lovely national parks and just a great place and you and you can still you can see the observatory on the top of Siding Spring there if you if you know where to look but it uh, it sticks out like a sore thumb doesn't it
1: <laughs> yeah well it does that's right yeah, i'm always reminded andrew you know it's a moving experience to see those mountains it is. Um, and i remember i think john oxley's words in his journal when he first approached those mountains, which he did actually from the west, and he called it a stupendous range of mountains raising their blue heads above the horizon. Indeed, And uh, then he went on to name it Arbuthnot's Range, which is a bit dumb because uh, they've had a very ancient Gamilaray name, which is Warambungal. It means crooked mountains. Yeah. And that's exactly what they look like. They do. That's right. Yeah. That's what they look like. So, yeah, marvelous that the observatory there, as I said, is is still attracting new facilities. And go to is something that I'm sure you and I will be talking about again, Andrew. I hope so. Yes. And it also, I suppose
0: indicates how significant the study of gravitational waves is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't be spending all this time and all this money and putting all these resources into something
1: if it wasn't worth pursuing. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, this has been heavily supported by the UK's science funding agency, the Science and Technical Facilities Commission. Is that the right thing? I can't remember. Uh, Agency, STFC. It's the Science and Technology Facilities Council, STFC. They've put five and a half million dollars into the project. So they're putting their money where their mouth is.
0: Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, Well, we'll just tell people when these telescopes are set up ready to roll and certainly keep an eye on how they develop and what they can teach us with their detections and uh, yeah, we'll we'll certainly make sure that we, uh, we revisit this story in the not too distant future. This is Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley and that is Fred Watson. Which way <laughs> are you, Fred? I don't know. <laughs> Stick around. More to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Space nuts.
0: Okay, Fred, let's tackle some... I keep looking up to the camera where it's not anymore. It's down (laughs) here now. Let's go to our questions, and we're going over to Dover, where Ben, well, he's basically continuing what we were just talking about with gravitational waves. Hi, I'm Ben Harding from Dover in, in England. I've got a question about gravitational waves. Will gravitational waves be subject to gravitational lensing? So if a wave comes from behind a cluster of galaxies, will it be magnified like light is? Thanks very much for an amazing podcast, guys. Cheers. Cheers, Ben. Thanks for the question. That's a good question. We talk about light and and the things behind gravitational lenses being uh, magnified and and being able to, uh, you know, the effects of a gravitational lens, but uh, does a gravitational
1: wave, is it affected by gravitational lensing? Uh, It's a great question, and the answer is, da yes, they are. Oh. So, and I have the authority of the LIGO collaboration behind me to say this, because I'm looking at their webpage at the moment. I have checked this before, and, you know, it's surprising what the phenomena are that gravitational waves are subjected to. They are significantly different from light waves, which are transverse waves. They're what are called quadrupole waves, which means that space-time vibrates in a much more complex way. But let me just read from the LIGO Scientific Collaborations website. What can gravitational lensing do to gravitational waves? Like electromagnetic waves, gravitational waves can be gravitational lensed by intervening objects such as stars, black holes, galaxies and galaxy clusters. However, <laughs> there's always a however, however, Andrew, while the theory behind the lensing of gravitational waves is similar to that of light lensing, the methods to detect it are entirely different due to fundamentally different sources and detectors. And you know, that's a reference to is exactly what we've just been talking about, that we don't have yet a way of imaging gravitational waves to show the details of exactly where they come from. We only get a rough idea of where they come from. So if, for example, you've got gravitational waves that pass by a black hole, and you know go, those going one side of the black hole take a little bit longer to get to us than those going on the other side, And you form a double image, then that's not going to be visible to us. However, the timing might be visible to us. But yes, it's a, it's a, the answer to the question is yes, it's a subtly different phenomenon, but they are subject to gravitational lensing. And how interesting. Yeah. So thanks, Ben. That's a great question.
0: Yeah. Because we we were only really, well, I was only considering that the, that objects would be affected by gravitational lensing and, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought something as fast and as
1: invisible as a gravitational wave would be affected. That that, that is fascinating. It, it is. I mean, in fact, it's the difference is not too startling because what you, even when an object is, uh, you know, is is distorted by a gravitational lens, it's actually the light passing around that through that gravitational lens that's being distorted. And light is kind of a, akin to gravitational waves in the sense that what we're seeing is a wave motion that's being transmitted through space. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right.
0: Thank you, Ben. Now we'll go to Alex, who's from a lovely... It's, it's actually a sordid, nasty, horrible little place called Bellingen in, oh,
1: in New
0: South Wales. <laughs> it's actually a glorious part of the world. Oh, it's delightful, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alex is uh, asking about galaxies. This is really good too. Hi, Fred and Andrew. It's Alex from Bellingen. Congratulations on your 300 shows. May there be many more. Okay, straight into my question. It's about the apparent size of galaxies, It's common understanding that the further away an object is, the smaller it appears to our eyes. I guess you could say the object's angular size reduces with distance. Just look down a long straight road lined with power poles, and the poles appear smaller the further away they are. But I've heard this seemingly obvious relationship between distance and apparent size does not apply to galaxies. Well, it does to a point, but at some distance away from us, the apparent size of galaxies stops getting smaller and then begins to increase the further from us they are. Have I heard that right? And if so, how the heck does that work? Thanks, and keep up the good work. All the best.
1: Oh, boy, you tell us, Alex. That sounds bizarre, Fred. It does, doesn't it? It's an extraordinary thing, but it is actually true. Um, and it's, it's a real illustration of the fact that, that uh, we live in a universe that has p- peculiar properties. And it's basically the fact that we live in an expanding universe that causes this phenomenon to happen. Because if you go through the mathematics, and actually there's, there are places on the web where you can find some nice diagrams that show how this works, uh, the, the further away you look, uh, you get to a certain point beyond which things don't look any smaller, because your, because the universe is expanding. That's the best way to put it. So, so if you imagine, think about you know our Andromeda galaxy, nearest neighbour, which is altogether something like two degrees on the sky, uh, at its distance of about two and a half million light years away. So if you started. We Visage Andromeda, we know what it's like. We've all seen pictures of the Andromeda galaxy, beautiful elongated spiral because it's tilted over towards us, um, two and a half million light years away. If you took that galaxy further and further away, of course, it would start looking smaller and smaller because it's getting further away. The laws of physics work pretty normally over small distances. But once you get to distance, which is actually, distance varies because it depends on your model of the universe. But I can give you the technical answer. It's at a redshift of about 1.5. And that's <laughs> sort of a distance that's measured in billions of light years. We're probably talking about something like eight or nine billion light years. Once it gets to that distance, it hits a minimum size, which is about a thousandth of a degree. Remember, it's, it's, two degrees at its present distance, but it gets yep. down to this 1,000th of a degree mark. And, and even though then, you know, keep on moving it away, it doesn't actually get any smaller. In fact, it starts getting a bit bigger. And that is totally bizarre, but it's it just is. about the way light behaves in an expanding universe. Wow. And and
0: is this something that would be able to be demonstrated by
1: the James Webb Space Telescope? Exactly so. I think huh. we'll see, you know, we'll see physical proof of this happening with the James Webb Space Telescope when they f- they find that there are galaxies that don't seem to get any smaller, even though you're looking at them further and further away. Quite incredible. Mm.
0: That's um, the same effect I have when I hit a golf ball. It doesn't get smaller <laughs> and smaller. It stays about the same size. Yes, Suggests I'm not really hitting it very far at all. (laughs) Never mind. If you hit Uh, it far enough, it'll start getting bigger.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's coming back to you. (laughs) Yes,
0: absolutely. Thanks, Alex, and hope all is well in Bellinger. I know you've been getting rained upon (laughs) by cats and dogs and camels and who knows what else in recent times. So hopefully it'll start to dry out soon. Uh, Now, that brings us to the end. Fred, we got there eventually. We've we had all manner <laughs> of technical <laughs> problem today. I know we got some live questions from people watching on YouTube. Apologies. I did mean to ask them, but Fred's got a hard deadline. and do. <laughs> please save them up for the next time we're on, which will be this time next week, and I'll try and get to them then. do appreciate the feedback from the, the live audience on YouTube, Facebook, and Patreon. But if you do have questions for us and you can't ask them live, you can do it via our website, spacenutspodcast.com and spacenuts.io. You can use either URL and uh, ask your questions via our various links, the AMA tab or send us your question tab on the right-hand side. And, of course, while you're there, check everything out and you know visit the Space Nuts shop, check out the, um, the news tab. Look at uh, becoming a a patron, if you like, and uh, don't forget to send your reviews through to your podcast platforms because more reviews, more listeners and more people to uh, share all this knowledge with. Fred, thank you so much for your patience and your input today. Always a pleasure. You are a true gentleman.
1: So are you, Andrew. You've worked very hard on that. I'm now wearing two pairs of headphones because I am about to join another meeting, but always delightful to hear from you. We'll speak again next week.
0: We will indeed, Fred. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Space Nuts episode 313 from me, Andrew Dunkley. Good to have your company. We'll catch you on the very next episode.